It's been a really good morning so far. I've had the, we've had the chance to hear from Roman and Carolyn, uh, which is always good. Uh, worship is good. And uh, now we're, we're going to take a look at Romans chapter 1, we'll be starting in verse 8. Romans chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, having Roman and Carolyn here, I had to uh, sort of think of just when I was a kid, just how I was always so fascinated by the work that they did. I just the idea of being in the jungle, I kind of probably envisioned things that weren't true, but I just, you know, had these ideas of the work they did, and it was always really fascinating, taking the gospel to, to unreached places. It was incredible. The other thing that I remember uh, about Roman and Carolyn when I was a kid is I remember learning uh, that it was Paul that wrote the book of Romans and not Roman Hostetler. Uh, it was uh, disappointing, to say the least, but uh, I've since recovered. Uh, ironically enough, we are in Romans. Uh, we're in the second week of a, of a long series. We're going to be in Romans for uh, most of this, the rest of this year and most of next. So, uh, Romans chapter 8, or uh, excuse me, Romans chapter 1, verses 8 to 15. Let's read together. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed throughout the world. For God, whom I serve with my spirit by announcing the gospel of his Son, is my witness that without ceasing I remember you always in my prayers, asking that by God's will I may somehow at last succeed in coming to you. For I'm longing to see you so that I may share with you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, or rather, so that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as I have among the rest of the Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish. Hence my eagerness to proclaim the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So this morning, what I would like to do with these verses, uh, it's going to be maybe a little different than sometimes what we're used to. Uh, Rather than sort of go verse by verse and and do sort of an expository preaching, I would like uh, to sort of turn this into an introduction of Romans were in uh, Kelsey sort of introduced the book last week. I'm going to be doing some of that this week, and then Kelsey will be doing some more introduction again next week. But this week, what I'd like to do is really look at Paul's purpose in writing Romans. Like what what was Paul's purpose in writing Romans? Uh, it's it's always helpful when when we you decide to read a book or maybe watch a movie. It's always helpful to kind of get a background and understand, okay, what's, what's the author trying to accomplish here? And so that's, that's what we're going to do this morning. And I'm going to give you the answer right off the bat. I'm going to kind of just give you the answer and then we'll wade through it. I believe that Paul writes the letter to, the Rome, to Rome to unify the churches in the gospel so that they will see the need to help Paul take the gospel into Spain And all of this, ultimately, is for God's glory. 
So let's talk about uh, the church in Rome for a bit. Paul writes to unify uh, the church. Why do they need unified? We, we should note that Paul commends them initially. He commends their faith and uh, is, is really excited about what he's hearing about this church. He's, never, he's not been here, we don't believe, but he's heard about them and, he, and they're faithful. Uh, but there, there is a sense that there's some disunity in the church. Uh, the, the church in Rome was made up of Jews and Gentiles. That might have been the case in lots of other churches, but, but here, more than other places, there was a, a, a big mix of both. And this Jewish-Gentile relationship comes with a lot of baggage. Uh, traditionally, uh, Jews sort of viewed uh, Gentiles almost as second-class citizens. Uh, there was a, there's a few places in Scripture that we read uh, Jews referring to Gentiles as dogs, seems like proof enough. Uh, furthermore, there, there was this history, and this is, this is fair on the part of the Jews, there's this history of Gentiles really not following God, really being pagan idol worshipers, uh, whereas the Jews, uh, people called by God to, uh, to be his, they traditionally followed one God, the God. So you had that dynamic. Gentiles, on the other hand, specifically this group of Gentiles, uh, Paul refers to them as Greeks, they viewed themselves pretty highly. Uh, Being referred to as a Greek in in the first century was a good thing. Uh, Greeks, they were well known for their education systems, they were well known for uh, their culture, it was kind of a, you know, they were the higher ups of culture. Uh, they were well respected, uh, and it's no accident that our New Testament, or that the New Testament, was written in Greek, because Greek was the language. Uh, if if you wanted to get anything done educationally or in business, you spoke Greek. It's not unlike English today. So uh, these Greeks probably had a similarly uh, poor view of the Jews. It's interesting to note uh, that if, if you're a history uh, person, in Acts chapter 18, we read about the fact that the Jews were expelled from Rome, and, and they recently have returned. So it's, we're not sure whether that played into this dynamic, but that was a, a part of what was going on. And so you imagine it had to have some weighings on, on their relationship. Beyond sort of historical things, uh, there's just cultural things, cultural struggles that they had to, uh, to get past. If you've ever visited another country or tried to, uh, you know, maybe you were on a work trip in another country, you know that things are just different, uh, and it can cause some tension. I know my wife and I spent some time in Spain and uh, most of what we did there was just work. Uh, we worked at a camp, and we had a coworker who was Spanish. And for the first month, uh, we generally went to work at 8 o'clock or 7.30, 8 o'clock. You know, we wanted to you know, beat the sun out and uh, work hard, get, get an early start, which you should know the sun doesn't come up till 8 or 8.30 in Spain. So 
Uh, I realize that's not early here, but there it was really early. Fernando, our co-worker, he wouldn't get to work till 10 o'clock. You know, the first few months, it's just kind of, or the first month, it's kind of like, you know, man, this is kind of like, this guy didn't get to work till 10 o'clock. Well, on the other side of things, he had a similar view of us. He's like, well, these Americans, they, they don't want to work with me. Like, what's their deal? They're trying to get here before I, before I do, and then they're trying to leave, you know, before I do. And there was just a little bit of a clash there, and it was all cultural. So I imagine that was a bit of what could have been going on uh, here, in, here in Rome. I'm, I'm speculating, but uh, that, that could have been part of the dynamic here. So in the book of Romans, Paul also gives us a couple of examples of how these two groups viewed their practice of faith differently. Right? We've talked about cultural issues, we've talked about some of their history, but they also probably practice their faith a little bit differently. In fact, in Romans chapter 14 and in 15, we read of two different instances. There were debates about food laws. The Jews, they would have practiced Old Testament law when it came to uh, eating food. There were certain foods that they would not eat because of, because of the Old Testament and the, the laws that they adhered to uh, based on that. Whereas the Gentiles... Their, their view of food would have been a little bit different, and they probably practiced and ate things differently. And it would have likely, it does cause tension. We read about it in Romans 14, and somebody else will get to preach on that, but uh, it's there. They also had different views of the Sabbath. So you have these cultural differences, you have these historical tensions, and then you have uh, these different views on practicing faith. So there's a little bit of room for some relational uh, hurdles, I guess. So in order to unify the church in, in Rome, Paul writes a lengthy exposition explaining thoroughly the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus. If we look at Romans... Chapter 1, verse 11, I read this. Paul writes this, For I'm longing to see you, so that I may share with you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Or rather, so that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So Paul indicates he's going to come to Rome, he's going to, to encourage, but he also expects to be encouraged. And the encouragement is rooted not in any sort of ethnic identity. It's not in any sort of uh, things that they share culturally. Their, their encouragement is based in their mutual faith in the gospel. Their mutual faith in the gospel. And I think it should be like that for us as well. We ought to be gathering together every Sunday, maybe throughout the week, reminding each other of the hope that we share in Jesus, right? I mean, I, I, I look out over this crowd and even in the first service, and I, I don't know everyone super well, but I know different people well, and I know that we don't all share the same interests. I know that we don't always share the same views on different uh, pract ways we practice our faith, but what unites us together 
as Christians is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And we ought to be reminding each other of that often. Unifying the church was important to Paul, not only for unity's sake, he also wanted the church to be unified, I believe, because he wanted the church to help him take the gospel to Spain, right? In order to accomplish a common mission, we have to be unified. And so Paul has in mind uh, that he wants to take the gospel to Spain, and he needs this church to do it. So I think we see evidences for this in the beginning and the end of the letter to, Ro- to the Romans. Verse 14, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Hence my eagerness to proclaim the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So here we see that Paul is very eager to proclaim the gospel. That's his calling in life. Even more, he describes himself as a debtor. I'm indebted to you all to share the gospel with you. So when we think of being indebted to somebody, often we think of uh, borrowing money. So if I borrow $100 from you, I'm in debt. I owe you $100. This isn't necessarily the case here. Here, it's kind of like the fast food line. This has never happened to me. I wish it would happen to me, but it's never happened to me. I've heard of it happening, where you order maybe a drink at a coffee shop, and the, the teller says, hey, the person in front of you paid for your drink, so you're, you're good to go. Well, so then, okay, you kind of feel like indebted to the person behind you. You feel like passing it on, so you go ahead and pay for the person behind you. You pay for their drink, and so on and so forth. Eventually, somebody ends the chain. That's fine if you've ended the chain. You just received the gift, that's all, it's okay. Uh, But that's the way that I think Paul feels in debt to people who have not heard the gospel. And I'd like to go back to Paul's beginnings, uh, to when he received the gospel himself. So we're going to go back to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. And at this point in Acts, Paul was being referred to as Saul. But here I'm going to just refer to him as Paul. Okay, I'm not changing his name. I'm just going to, I want us to think of this as being Paul. Because I think sometimes we we separate uh, the two Pauls. So I'm just going to refer to him as Paul here. Acts chapter 8, 1 to 3. That day a a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. Paul was ravaging the church by entering house after house. Dragging off both men and women, he committed them to prison. And if you skip to chapter 9, Meanwhile, Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This is one of the greatest, this is the greatest missionary of all time, an enemy of the church. Now, he was going along and approaching Damascus 
Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Get up, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So Paul uh, gets up. He's blind, remember, so he's helped into the city. And at the same time, uh, we have a man named Ananias. And, And the Lord is speaking to Ananias, telling him, hey, there's this guy, Paul. He's coming into town. I need you to go see him. Ananias knows very well who this Paul is. I mean, word spreads pretty quickly that Paul is dragging people out of their homes, hauling them off to prison, and Ananias knows this. Uh, But God assures him, I have plans for Paul. You can trust me. Go see him. So that's what Ananias does. Ananias goes, he sees Paul, has a conversation with Paul, uh, and heals Paul of his blindness, and he baptizes him. He baptizes uh, an enemy of the church, has come to faith, and, and Ananias baptizes him. It's an incredible story. But I believe that this radical conversion that Paul experiences uh, is partially why he feels so indebted to people who have not heard the gospel. I mean, obviously, uh, Jesus has put this calling on his life, so he feels this calling. But I, I also assume that he does not forget his conversion experience. So how does this relate to Spain? I've not even mentioned Spain yet, even though I said that I think that's why Paul is writing the letter. Paul describes himself, like we've said, as a debtor to Greeks and to barbarians. Now, it's not consensus opinion necessarily, but there are a lot of scholars who believe when Paul refers to barbarians, he's actually talking about the people in Spain. And even if this isn't the case, we've seen how Paul makes a huge case for this idea that no matter our ethnic uh, identity, no matter, no matter our background, no matter our social status, that everyone needs to hear the good news of Jesus. But there is more stark evidence in chapter 15 of Romans. I'm going to read from chapter 15, verse 20. Thus, I, that's Paul, make it my ambition to proclaim the good news, not where Christ has already been named, so that I do not build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him shall see, and those who have never heard of him shall understand. Skipping to verse 23, I desire as I have for many years to come to you when I go to Spain. For I do not hope to see you on my, so, for I do hope to see you on my journey and to be sent by you once I have enjoyed your company for a little while. So Paul recognizes that there's this established church in Rome and he wants to go there. He does. 
He wants to go to encourage and to unify, but he wants to go there in order to be sent on to Spain, I believe, to be sent on to places where the gospel has not been heard. Rome has this established church, and Paul says, let me use that as a sending base to go into Spain to preach to people who haven't heard. And again, we've already kind of established, in order to have this kind of one single-minded mission, we have to be unified. So I hope throughout this series that we really recognize those two purposes in Romans. This idea that we are all unified because of the gospel. You know, no matter the many differences that we have, we're unified because of the gospel. But also, I hope we notice the good news in Romans and we see and are compelled to take that good news to different places, to different people, to different uh, circles that we're in. So those are two of the purposes. The third, I believe, purpose that Paul writes uh, the letter uh, of Romans is to bring glory to God. I think that's his primary purpose. I feel like that's Paul's primary purpose in anything he does is for the glory of God. So unifying the churches, that is a way of glorifying God. 15 verse 7 says, Therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you, so that God will be glorified. Not unity just for unity's sake, although that's good, but for the glory of God. See, when we are unified by the gospel, God is glorified. Nothing is more damaging, I don't believe, to the church than when the church is divided, than when there is infighting in the church. Nothing puts a bigger black mark on Christianity than when churches can't get along. We, in our world, have a lot that divides us, don't we? The world is divided by a lot of different things. We're divided by our politics. We're divided by issues of race. We're divided by our nationality. We're divided by uh, just, there's so many things that divide us, right? What a better witness of the gospel than we as a church can gather together uh, with diverse views uh, and with all our diversity and we can be unified by the good news of Jesus. That's, that brings glory to God. I believe taking the gospel to Spain uh, glorifies God. Kelsey touched on this last week, chapter 1, verse 5. He says, We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all Gentiles for the sake of his name. So we, we, we seek to bring people to faith ultimately for the sake of God's name. I think as we continue in Romans, we will see the gospel laid out in fullness. And I believe if we're paying close attention, I know, I know it's going to be a long series, but I think if we're paying attention, we're going to see uh, these three purposes. We're going to see that it unites us, we're going to see that it compels us to share good news, and we're going to see how it glorifies God. And so I would issue this challenge uh, this week. It's a big challenge, don't get me wrong, 
I assume less than half of you will complete it, but prove me wrong. I want to challenge you to either listen to or read through the entire book of Romans. In one sitting, if possible, if that's not possible, do it in three. I know that's, that's a tall task, but uh, I did it. I didn't read through it. I struggled to stay awake and read that long at a time, uh, you know, in, in one sitting. But what I did is I listened to it while I followed along in my Bible. And I, I promise you it will prove to be worth it. it. It helps you to see these themes so much clearer to wade through this book in, in as few sittings as possible. So that's my challenge to you this week, is to read through or listen through the book of Romans. I think it'll prove to be fruitful. So in closing, I'd like to read this from Romans chapter 11, uh, 33 to 36. Chapter 11, 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has given a gift to him? To receive a gift in return. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are good. Thank you that you have come, you have sent your Son to put us back into right relationship with God. And thank you that you also have given us your word to reveal that to us. God, I pray that as we wade through this book of Romans, that you would show us these themes, that you would show us the gospel clearly, you would compel us to, to take it to friends and to neighbors and maybe even to the ends of the earth. God, I pray that this week even we would begin to be processing those things and, and to be putting uh, these ideas into practice. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.